Good morning, church. Um, my, name is, uh, my name is Malcolm. I am the pastoral intern here. Um, and so, and so that, means, that means a few things. Um, first of all, any opportunity I have to expound the word, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ before you all is, a, is, a, is an opportunity that I'm thankful for. But in these next coming five to six months, um, I'm going to be preaching less often than I, than I have been. Uh, it's going to be roughly once every two months. I'm about to enter, enter into a season where I'm finishing my dissertation and also preparing for licensure and ordination so that I'll actually be pastor, which will be great. Um, well, thank, well, thanks, thanks, y'all. Um, but it's going to take a lot of focus because Presbyterians do not play games with the ordination process. Um, but after, but all, after all that's done, uh, I'll be able to preach as as often as often as you'll have me. Cool. All right. So let's get into the word. Uh, I want to start by saying this: recently, people have been really theologically reckless out here in these streets. Back. Back in, back in 2013, there was a Newsweek article, a Newsweek magazine cover, and it had a big picture of past President Obama, and it said, the second coming, America expects, can he deliver? In the last few weeks, as a matter of fact, throughout the presidency of our current president, some have lifted him up to godlike status. Example, earlier this year, uh, an, an Israeli organization released a coin depicting Trump and Cyrus on the same coin. If you don't know who Cyrus is, Cyrus is, is predicted in, uh, in the book of Isaiah to be the one who brings the people back from exile. And so people have used this language of, 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 of describing the president as the Lord's chosen instrument for reasons that have yet to be made explicit. Now time does not allow me to dismantle the recklessness of these theological claims. It's one thing to claim the Lord's ordination of all things, which he does by virtue of his sovereignty. It's quite another to claim his approval. Now, all of this has served as much distraction for the people of God, because others may purport to be our king, but we already have one, and we'll stick with him, thank you very much. This morning, Jesus Christ is the king that we worship, and it's his kingship that we're going to learn about in our consideration of Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Now, before you say, now, now Malcolm, the pulpit is, is, isn't, a, isn't a place for politics, I respond by saying what Eugene Peterson says about the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. The fact of the matter is, is, that, is that as human beings, we're, we're going to exercise some kind of power in our public and, and, and private spheres, and when we discuss that, that's in a sense politics. And so, and, and, and so the scriptures have a little bit to say about how power is exercised, especially in a world where we see its abuses daily. Amen? Nothing is outside of the purview of the gospel, and so nothing is off limits for us to talk about. So let's take a look at the word, Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Shirley, could you come forward and read it for us? Oh, and please stand for the reading of, of God's word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity 
for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion shall be fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young, li- the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let's pray. Father, by your spirit, illumine your word. May your living and active word slice us like a double-edged sword, revealing and cutting away our sin, penetrating down to our joints, our marrow, and ultimately our most inward being, our hearts. Reveal to us by your word who you are. In the name of your son and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Welcome to the third Sunday in Advent. This Sunday is called Gaudete Sunday, where where Gaudete is is Latin for all y'all rejoice. Now, our last two weeks have been focused on the darkness, but as we get closer to Christmas, we're we're to consider the joy of the return of the king. It's why we lit that pink candle. It signifies joy. And so these verses in Isaiah give us a stark picture before our eyes of what that hope and that joy are and they add meat to the declaration of the gospel. Now, the word gospel is thrown around a lot these days. I mean, churches, churches have got gospel groups. People are invested in gospel growth. I mean, it's our, it's our purpose to get up here and preach, and preach the gospel every week. But, but how often do we consider what, what the gospel is? By that I mean, why is the word gospel used to summarize the good news of Jesus Christ? And now the answer to that question is the answer to why this season is called Advent, or coming, and all of that is brought to beautiful light in Isaiah 11. Because what's this text about? It's about the coming of a crucified and resurrected king. It's about the fact that we need a king to save us. And the word gospel, it means good news, and and it was most often used to describe the victory of an emperor. When a a Roman emperor won, won a territory, his gospel was proclaimed in that area, the good news that now this, now, this, now this territory is under the control of Rome. Current example, there's a movie uh, that came out recently, uh, made about $2 billion in, bo- in the box office, uh, and it begins with a gospel proclamation. Slim's the Star Wars nerd, I'm the, I'm the nerd of this particular variety. Let's see if you, let's see if you recognize uh, the first words of this, of this movie character comes out and says, hear me and rejoice. You have had the privilege of being saved by the great Titan. You may think this is suffering. No, it is salvation. The universal scales tip toward balance because of your sacrifice. Smile, for even in death, 
you have become children of Thanos. That's right. Avengers Infinity War begins with a gospel proclamation of the good news of Thanos, that Thanos has come to save the universe. Now, the gospel that we're talking about this morning is a little different because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a declaration that a king has come to claim his people and his world. But who is this king and what is this king like? And so this is what Isaiah 11 is about. And so I've got three points, three points for us uh, as the title in your bulletin suggests that this king is the shoot, the snoot, and the root. Somebody say shoot, the snoot, and the root. Now I know a lot of you don't know what snoots are. Um, so so it's, a, it's, it's, a, it, it's a pig snout with the nostrils removed and most of the hair removed, uh, cut up and fried or grilled. So, so I hear it's delicious. Uh, people in St. Louis love it. Um, and you're getting a little bit of a cultural education in, in church today too. So, but that's point two. We'll get there. So I want to start with the shoot. Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now what's Isaiah talking about? For some context, we've we've got to see why kingship is so important for the Israelites. And so after the people of God conquer Canaan, which which we see in the book of Joshua, you've got the book of Judges, which is wild. People are doing what's right in their own eyes, and there's a phrase that's repeated throughout throughout the book of Judges, and it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. It was the Wild West. No central government, just people doing what's right in their own eyes. And so when we get to 1 Samuel, which we confessed from this morning, the elders of the community come to Samuel, one of the prophets, and say, hey, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now to God, this is a deeply offensive request because God has done a lot of work to show the people that he's their God and their king. But they neglected and refused his rule, according to God, since the day that he brought them out of Egypt. So he told Samuel, fine, let him have it. But warn them about what's going to happen. And so, and so in the history of Israel, you, you, you then move into Saul, the first king, David, the, the son of Jesse, and Solomon. And then civil war, and the, and, the, and the nation splits into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But lurking in the background is a promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And if there's one thing we know about our God, we know that he fulfills his promises, amen? God promised to David this, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the people of God are waiting for a king like David and in David's line. They're waiting for a royal Messiah. Now, after the split of the kingdom, the the, the people of Israel are facing outside opposition, and Isaiah is addressing that in Isaiah 11. And so in chapter 11, he's talking about the judgment that the people of Israel are about to suffer. Assyria, a foreign nation, is about to come in and basically wipe them out. It's why why Jesse is referred to as a stump, because basically the forest is going to be wiped out, and all that's going to be left is a stump. And so when this promise is made, Isaiah is saying that it's, it's going to be, in a, it's going to be a, in a period of hopelessness, this darkness that descends over Advent. 
Isaiah is saying that it's in the midst of darkness that the king will return in an unexpected way. He's saying that it's precisely when things appear hopeless that the Lord will bring hope. For the people of Israel, that darkness was often foreign, unjust rule. But for you, that darkness can take numerous forms. Conflict at work. Conflict with family. Conflict within. All of these things are manifestations of the corrupting work of sin in the world. And all of it places us among the people whom Isaiah addresses. A people waiting for deliverance. And the answer, according to Isaiah 11.1, is that the answer is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And so the answer has to be somebody who comes from Jesse's line. Somebody who's descended from David. Someone who will reign righteously. But who might this be? Well, we've got to find out some more. Because because this king will not just be a descendant of David. He's also going to be guided by the spirit of the Lord. This special anointing of the spirit is is what we see in Isaiah 11 too. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What spirit? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. This is all Isaiah, Isaiah 11 too. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now I need us all to hear, to hear that. If we, because if we think of what we need, even in this moment of your life, this kind of person is the person that we need. We need someone who will regularly live a life of wisdom and discernment, someone who understands our situation. For example, if you, if you, if you talk to me about, uh, about what's going on at work, what's going on in your life, and things like that that, 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 that could take a lot of time. And there's no guarantee that I'll understand. I want to. I love you, and I want, and I want to understand, but, we, but, 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 but sometimes we come from different backgrounds, and it's difficult for us to understand. We need somebody who understands us. But we need somebody who doesn't just understand. We need someone, not, not just somebody who has wisdom, not just somebody who has understanding, but, but also this, 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 this Messiah has the spirit of counsel and might. Counsel, meaning the, the, the wisdom to point, us the way, to point us the way forward. See, because not, not all counsel is good counsel, amen? Some of us have gotten some bad advice in our lives. But the Messiah's counsel is by the spirit. He also has the spirit of might. That is the power necessary to propel us forward. But all of that is under the umbrella of that last clause, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Because every single one of this person's actions are guided by the fear of the Lord, a wise submission in all things to the Lord's commands. It sure would be nice to be under the rule of such a king. It sure would be nice to be under the rule of whoever this shoot of Jesse might be. But this this figure is not just the shoot. He's also the snoot. Now, that's crazy, you might say. Malcolm, why would you use the nose of a pig, an unclean animal, to describe this promised king? Well, let's take a look at verses 3 to 5. Isaiah 11, 3 to 5. It's all about how this king is going to judge. Verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or or, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, 
but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Then, as now, we're in need of someone who judges with righteousness. And, and that's difficult for us to do in our daily lives because chances are every day you're trying to make decisions. Should I take this job or leave? Do, how do I discipline my kids and raise them in the admonition of the Lord? How do I best love my wife or husband? Do I study for this exam or do I just wing it? And we often make these decisions based on what we see and what we hear. We see and hear of our friends living in a particular way and we think, hey, that looks good, I'll try it. There was a time when the first time when you encounter a situation that you don't understand or don't have the resources to deal with, there was a time where you would have to call somebody to get that answer. But now, we just go to Google. Don't know how to change a tire? Google it. Don't know how to cook a steak? Google it. Don't know why you have a bad cough? Google it. Well, you may not want to do that because you'll probably find out that you have lupus or SARS or bird flu, according to the internet. But the Messiah in Isaiah 11 doesn't judge by any of those standards. The Messiah in, in, in Isaiah 11 judges by smell. Take a look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? The Hebrew word that's translated delight there comes from the word for scent, reach. When, when God's delight is spoken of in the Old Testament, it's, it's often a response to a sweet smell. And so the word for smelling a sweet smell is translated as delight. And, and, and we sang this morning, day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Because, 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 because in the Old Testament, God, the Lord is described as having a keen sense of smell. And so this verse is saying that, that this Messiah is going to judge by smelling with the guidance of the fear of the Lord. Now, why might this be significant? Why might Isaiah use the language of smell to describe the judgment of the Messiah? Well, you know, sight and sound can be deceiving. This is especially true when we consider sin. Because some of us can tolerate sinful sights and sounds. The lust of the eyes is our eyes lingering on things that they ought not linger on. And that, and that, can, be, that, can, that, that can be greed, that can be envy, it can be, it, can be, it, it can be sexual lust. But in each of these situations, our eyes are lying to us because they're telling us that we want or need what we see. So also our ears can deceive us and give us occasion to sin. We can fill our minds with what and who we want to hear. People who tell us we're awesome. People who stroke our egos and entertain us. But see, while you can be repulsed by seeing something gross or by hearing something unpleasant, nothing quite imprints on our minds like smell does. Nothing. Now, you all know that I, 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 I study lynching in American history. And so it's perhaps the most gruesome and dark period of American history, particularly for black people. Now, the sight of a human being being burned alive is sickening to consider. The sounds of it are even more sickening to imagine. The cheering of the crowds, the shrieks and the cries of the victims. 
But the worst part from eyewitnesses is the smell, the stench of burning human flesh. Nothing quite hits us like smell does. You can close your eyes, you can plug your ears, but smells, especially bad ones, stick with you. And this Messiah can smell sin, pain, and misery in all of its funkiness. This Savior, this Messiah, this King is the protector of the afflicted, the oppressed, and the humble. And that's good news for the suffering, but that's bad news for those causing the suffering. He's not the protector of everybody without exception because he's pledged himself to righteously protect those who know themselves to be in need because there's a lot of funky sin in the world. And while my and your sin may be outside of the sight and earshot of those around us, it's still funky. When, when, when we demean our neighbors, something smells funky. Particularly according to this passage, when, when we neglect the poor and the meek, something smells funky. When, 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 if we, as individuals or as members of social networks and systems, support policies and practices that subject, exclude, or add to the suffering of the poor, of the meek, of the widow, of the orphan, of children, of any of the marginalized, something smells funky. And, and as a matter of fact, when, when, when we look at the world as a whole, we see a world that sin has ravaged and, and a world that is funky. And so we groan and we fight for a new one. Because once the Lord, by his grace, has adjusted our noses to sniff out injustice, it becomes very difficult for us to ignore. I pray that, for each, I pray that each of us would be, uh, as Dr. King has said, maladjusted to injustice. Because our Lord can't handle the smell of it, and our Lord doesn't want us to be able to tolerate the smell of it either. And so... And so our noses have to be adjusted to hope for a, for a new cleansed world that only Christ can bring in. And what is that hope? Take a look at Isaiah eleven six to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the new heavens and the new earth. This is the result of God's cataclysmic judgment. For the wicked, it means that destruction is coming. And as a note, this is why violent retaliation is not part of our ethic as Christians. It's not, it's not because evil isn't evil and worthy of being destroyed, because it is, but it's because God is the one who's promised to handle it. And, so, and he's going to handle it better than we could with our limited resources. Right? Amen? And, and, and for those who place their faith in this Messiah, in this king, 
This is the world that awaits, a world where there is no longer predator and prey, a world where oppression is no more because the oppressor has been wiped out, a world where suffering is no more because sin has been eradicated, a world where racial strife is no more because humanity has been truly and justly reconciled to God and to one another, a world where sin is no more and a world where death is no more, a world where the Messiah reigns. But how can one dude's reign have such cosmic consequences? Verse 5 says that, the right, that, that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins, which gives us a military picture of a guy who's got, who's got his robe tucked into his belt because he's ready to get down to business. But, 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 but how is this work so widespread? How is this work so effective? I mean, we got trouble keeping tabs on our own families. We got trouble keeping, keeping tabs on our own relatively small lives. How can, how can one person change the very nature of the world and redeem us from the corruption that our sin has wrought? Well, he's not just the shoot from Jesse, and he's not just the righteous snoot that has a, with a nose that has been righteously adjusted. He's also the root of Jesse. Because, because he didn't just come through the line of David. No, 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 he's, he's also somehow the source of David, the one from whom Jesse and David came. As Slim has said next week, last, last week, this Messiah is not only a character in the story, he's the author of it. And, 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 and see, we never could have dreamed that the first promise of the gospel would be fulfilled in this way. In Genesis 3.15, in Genesis 3.15, it's part of the curse that God, after, after, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, uh, the, there, there's a curse that God uttered over Adam, Eve, the serpent, and the ground. And in his curse on the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now salvation, according to this, is gonna come from a human being who, who would receive an injury at the hand of Satan, but who would deal Satan a death blow. I think, I think you might know who this, who this person is. I haven't said it yet, but, but the Bible waits until the sixth to last verse of the entire thing to reveal it. Revelation 22, 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. One man fits all this criteria. One man reigns over this earth as the righteous and the only true king, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, anointed to be prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, the prophet and the word, Jesus, the high priest and the sacrifice, Jesus, son of God, yet born of a woman, y'all not praying with me, Jesus, the all-knowing one who learned, Jesus, the omnipresent one who localized himself, Jesus, the all-powerful one who submitted, Jesus, the alpha and the omega, Jesus, come on, Jesus, the beginning and the end, Jesus, the friend of sinners and the enemy of the wicked, Jesus, who in mercy bore our judgment, Jesus, the redeemer of of the world, and as Dr. S.M. Lockridge would say, do you know him? Jesus is our only hope and our only joy in the midst of darkness. Because apart from the shoot, the snoot, and the root, we are without hope. 
And so then, what does this mean for us? If this is who the king is, what do we do as citizens of his kingdom? First of all, we, 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 we need to be clear about what, about what, you need to be clear about what your relationship with this king is. Because he died and was raised to receive a people and a kingdom. And so to get on the train of that salvation, we must repent and believe the gospel in order to be joined to this king. And he invites us to come, all who are weary and downtrodden, and he will give you rest. But once you do come, you got to know something, because Jesus, Jesus doesn't want just some of you. He wants all of you. Your entire allegiance, above all else. And that's one of the big things that we get from this whole kingship image, because we're all in a number of structures of authority. You've got your parents. You've got bosses at work. You've got the earthly government. And each and every one of these is secondary to the kingship of Jesus, all of them. There is nothing that takes precedence over, over, over the love of God and the love of neighbor. And so the scriptures are clear that we are to obey in each of these structures. But there's a constant scriptural caveat. If they conflict with the Lord's commands, we go with God, no question. Jesus Christ is the one who died for me. Not my mom, not my dad, not my boss, not my mayor, not my senator, not my president. And if that means we face consequences, so be it. But our commitment must be to the triune God and to no other. And know that even if you suffer, if you do so in the name of Christ and in pursuit of his righteousness, the world that awaits, the world that you fight and wait for, is the world of Revelation 22, 1 to 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The time is coming, beloved, when God will reveal himself to the world. Christ will return, and we will see him, and we will be changed. His continuous work of making us righteous will be completed. The darkness will fade away, and God himself will be our light. And best of all, that last clause, the king will reign and we will reign alongside him. We will finally be what we were created to be. Vice regents alongside the king of kings, servants and kings and queens alongside the king of kings who came to earth not to be served, but to serve. This is our future. This is our hope. This is our joy. O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O 